Joe, we talk about AWA a lot on here, especially you. There are quite a few series that you've turned me on to, uh, one of which is one of the scarier horror stories that we've ever talked about. There's another one that you talked about recently. Coincidentally, those two books were written by the same human being. And I think we're talking to that person today, if I'm not mistaken. Who is it, Joe? Well, sometimes, Nick, your shooter's got to shoot, right? You got you to stand on the mound. You got to pitch your pitch. And, you know, I said, you know, we, we've done this before with Rodney and with, with Sean Lewis. We're just going to throw it in the Twitterverse, see if we can pull in a fish. And we got a big one today, folks. We got John Lees from AWA Studios. Um, he's written books uh, that I've talked about on the show last week with Crimson Cage. Uh, we've also discussed Hotel John. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. I think that's the first time I've ever been called a human being. Hi, President <laughs> Dean. <laughs> I, I am a real human man. That's going to be my new Twitter profile. Yes. Facts. <laughs> yep. So we do. So we spit on the show is facts. So yeah. I'm a real boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, welcome. We're very excited to have you. It, it's funny because I, you know, prior to Hotel, I hadn't read any of your work and i was talking with uh, with a friend of mine freddie um formerly of um nightmare indie alley uh, indie <laughs> alley thank you i'm, I'm covid brain here i'm getting over, getting over the illness <laughs> and uh i was reading ice cream man actually and he had said to me he said if you want a more fucked up version of ice cream man you need to read hotel by john lees and so i did it and he goes read it in the daylight and I did, and that was a wise choice. Uh, I, mean, I don't know about that. Ice cream man's pretty fucked up. So, <laughs> so that was that was my first introduction into you know to to your work. And Nick and I have both you know loved Hotel, but I wanna I wanna start first with Crimson, Crimson Cage because that book, uh, the fifth and final issue of that first volume is is dropping uh, the day you're listening to this interview. Um, if you're listening to us on New Comic Book Day and. This series blew me away. I, I mean, I'm a wrestling fan. I know you're a wrestling fan. I've, I've seen your tweets, uh, you know, during WrestleMania and things like that. It's, 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 always, it's always a fun follow. Um, so what I want to know is why did the, you know, when did the idea first pop into your head to not just write a wrestling comic book, but to write one based on one of the most famous literary works of all time in Macbeth? Um, well, actually, that's kind of like a multi-pronged question, so bear with me here, but, um, like, I've all, like, obviously, I've always loved wrestling, going back to, like, when I was a kid, um, like, in the early 90s, like, I remember the first event I watched, um, or the first big pay-per-view, at least, was, like, the Royal Rumble 1992, and I've kind of, like, you know, been on and off ever since then, um, and, like, so, like, Way back from when I started my comic career, the first comic I ever wrote was a superhero book called The Standard. Um, I first started writing that like back in like 2010. And when I finished that, um, even back then, I had the idea of I wanted to do a wrestling comic. And I had the idea of doing like a story set in like the territory days of the 1980s, um, which was a little bit before my time because I say I got into wrestling in the 90s, but like I always was fascinated by that era of history um because i mean i very specifically set this story like the year before uh wrestlemania like 1984 i think it's quite fascinating that um like the wwe obviously is very successful um but wrestlemania coming along is kind of like an extinction event in a ways like you know like the world of wrestling like as it existed beforehand it's a bit like like the video shop or something like before like wwe and it's been um like wrestling was like all these little territories, little fiefdoms, like you know, like little small, you know, you know, things carved out all over the place. Like it was a totally different scene. And I just think that's like it was a fascinating little snippet of American history which is gone now. And so I, I was always interested in that era and the kind of personalities that populated that era. So I always wanted to do some kind of story set in that time frame. Um and I always had the kind of role. I didn't know what that story would be. I had the setting in mind, I had a couple of the characters in mind, but I just didn't have a story. I wasn't sure if it was going to be like a noir, if it was going to be like, you know, a kind of biopic type thing or what. But like, I wanted to do something, but just didn't know what. So that kind of went, went in the back burner for years. Um, and then similarly, I've long been a fan of Shakespeare. Like I studied Shakespeare in university. Um, and one of the things that really awoke my love to Shakespeare was 
when I studied Macbeth in the first year of high school. And for me, like, I was always like a wee horror-loving weirdo. And, like, when I read Macbeth, I was like, this is a horror story. It's witches, it's um, murder, decapitations, like, you know, nightmarish visions, blood. I kind of, I thought it was really fascinating. Um, and that kind of fascination kind of, like, carried through into adulthood. And I remember it was, like, the first kind of inkling of it all coming together was, like, 2015, when I watched... Um, the Michael Fassbender, uh, Justin Curzel, um, Macbeth came out and thought it was excellent. And that kind of like reunited that old love of Macbeth. And shortly afterwards, I sought out Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, which has became one of my all-time favourite movies. I'm kind of obsessed with it. And when I watched that, I started my brain started thinking like, well, what would my version of Macbeth be? I think it's so like you know inspired that this kind of like takes um, the story of Macbeth and puts it in a new setting of like feudal Japan and samurai, and that shift and set makes it this whole new beast and this whole new thing and does fascinating things. I was thinking, what would my version of that be? And then the old idea of like doing like a wrestling thing that I didn't have a story for kind of resurfaced again, and it all kind of came together. I was like, ah, and it was actually like way like. 2017, I've been talking to like an editor. This was pre AWA Studios, like before they even existed. I was talking to an editor, and they were like, Okay, um, pitch me an idea. Like, if, if you could do any comic, what they said was, If you could do any comic, like, what would it be? What would your ultimate project be? And that was the idea that came in my head. Like, and then, then the name, The Crimson Cage, took shape. And normally, like, me coming up with pitches is agonizing, it takes me forever. <laughs> but, like, you know, that's just flew together as soon as I had that idea in my head all the story beats all clicked into place like you know the world champion being like the king and like the various story beats and the idea of like instead of having like soliloquies like you know which is in the play when the characters step forward and speak to the audience have that in the form of like a promo the guy holding the microphone talking to the camera um or even things like um the the, the scene of Banco's ghost in Beth when like you know we know Macbeth holds a big banquet for all of the lords, and then, like you know, um, the then Banquo's ghost shows up. For this one, I thought let's do like a battle royal, like a big royal rumble, where everyone's like fighting in the ring instead. And just like all, all the little parallels all just come together. This actually works really well. And normally, I feel really apprehensive. I'm not necessarily a good pitcher. Like you know, I feel I'm an okay writer, but. Normally, like, my pictures are, like, some bad stand-up comic going, oh, yeah, and this happens, and I forgot to mention earlier on that, like, someone's <laughs> dogs do whatever, you know, but, like, but this one's, like, you know, like, you see it in one line, like, you know, um, a retelling of Macbeth set in 1980s pro wrestling, and, like, instantly, if that's someone's shit, then they're going to like it, and they know exactly what you're going for, and, like, so I love this idea, and even though that particular conversation never panned out, like, you know, that particular editor, the idea always stayed in my head, and then, like, when I was talking, then I first met up with Axel, like, you know, and late, this, was, this would have been in 2018, I believe, I met with Axel for the first time. And, like, we first started talking about working together, and I was, you know, and sort of developed Hotel. Even at that point, I was thinking in the back of my mind, like, you know, if Hotel goes well, maybe I'll have, like, Crimson Cage in my back pocket to pitch, because they'll never let me do the Crimson Cage right away. I have to do something <laughs> else that works first, you know. <laughs> um, but then I think Hotel overperformed and did well beyond everyone's expectations, and I thought they might just let me get away with this mad idea. You know, and I could see, like, when I pitched it, some of them were like, you know, mm, you know, but then they were in, you know, well, maybe we'll let me, it's Sean, maybe we'll let him get away with it. But um, I think it helped a lot that um, Hassan Otsmanilhau, the letter, put together this amazing pitch package for the book as well. Like, think we the best pitch package I've ever had a, my name on in terms of all oh, looked like an old school wrestling card, like the pay per view bills and things like this. Ah. Like, you know, and it just looked amazing. Like, once the book saw released, I want to see if we can release that pitch package like to show everybody because um, it was amazing. Um, and yeah, so that was like then, from, then from there, the rest is history. Like, we had a, a lengthy period through 2019. I think it was like because it was a little while a couple of publishers we talked to about the book, but 2019, AWA said they wanted to do it. And after like a lengthy period of negotiation and talking about the contract, what the format the book would be, um, originally I had to pitch a 10 issue series, two issues per act. And um, AWA talked me down to five. I think it was actually a better decision in the end, like, you know, because it's five acts, five issues. I think it works nice. Um, and eventually, like, you know, we're we signed. I remember I'd signed in February 2020. We finally signed the contract to do this book. And I said to Alex, 
Alex, it's been a long time ago. This is Alex Cormack, the artist, by the way, mm. who I work with on Sync. But I said to Alex, Alex, it's been a long time coming. We've been doing all this. But now, short of society as we know it falling apart, this book's definitely coming out this year. And then, like, three weeks later, <laughs> like, mm. like, we were in lockdown. <laughs> um, and then, like, everything got, like, put on hold for, like, a year. Um, but... Yes, yeah, so it's been a long time coming and a lot of like hurdles, but yeah, we eventually got there to get the book made. I can't even remember what your question was. I hope I answered it. <laughs> you did. You did. And actually, you answered the next question we were going to ask you about it. AW, right? Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously, AWS put out some awesome stuff at Hotel was friggin' outstanding. And you, you brought it before. I should have said this. Well, the reason I had to identify you as a human being, because if anybody's read Hotel, I would understand why they would question it, because that thing is <laughs> fucked up in the best ways. Um, but one thing with the Crimson Cage, so I don't know how much Joe told you about what we do with our you know mainline episodes when we're not doing interviews, but Joe and I will talk to each other about books that the other has not read. So I have yeah. read the Crimson, Crimson Cage, but before last week, I hadn't. You know, he called dibs and everything like that. But wrestling- oh, yeah, no, I watched last week's episode huh? and I saw, oh. like, you know, you're talking about how you didn't like wrestling and how you weren't sure you were going to like it. And yeah. then you said you were going to give it a go. And I thought, I'm going to ask him if he, if he, if he gave I it a I did. Go. I liked it very much. <laughs> and it was exactly as Joe sold it and everything. And uh, not that, you know, after reading the first issue, Joe didn't really need to sell it that hard. Um, but he did a great job, you know, explaining it and everything. And I, I really enjoyed it. When you're writing this, of course, you want to write the story you want to write and the one that entertains you most and that is going to highlight Alex's talents and, of course, Ashley as well. But do you did you ever in the process think about, like, all right, how am I going to sell this to non-wrestling fans so that way it's niche but still not, you know, niche where it isolates those kind of people or pushes out those kind of people? Well, this is actually, like um... – I kind of tension I've had like various points like throughout my career um, where uh, and I've kind of like the lessons I've learned have kind of pushed me like towards a certain direction like I remember way back back in the day um, this would have been like 2013-2014 when I developed a comic called And Then Emily Was Gone with uh, the artist Dean Laurie and that was a comic set in the Orkney Islands um, which is like a little island you know community up at the north of Scotland, you know, which was not familiar with people outside of Scotland for the most mm. part. And it was very local and it was very kind of like built in Scottish folklore and Scottish history. And Ian Laurie, like, is a fantastic artist. I think he's a genius, but his art is not for everybody. It's very strange, very kind of like unsettling and sinister and not like a classically mainstream um, art style. And the story was very bizarre, like, and very out there. And I got advice at the time when I was first developing this, and I was sharing pitch pages with people, like, you know, you shouldn't do this. Like, you've done, like, a quite successful mainstream, like, superhero comic in the standard. You should build on that. You're going to limit your audience by doing something that's so weird and personal and individual. Um, it's not going to vibe everybody. But the lesson I've kind of learned is um, that... If you do something that's like for everybody, it's going to be for nobody, really. I think, like, you know, you can only do like my, my, my kind of guiding light throughout my career is I want the like, if, if other people like the stories, it's great. Like, you know, I, obviously, I love like things resonating with people, but the one person that I'm writing for is like myself, like, mm-hmm. the to one. Every book that I've made has been had the starting impetus of this book. I, I want this book to exist so I can read it, but no one else has made it, so I'm going to have to make it. Um, and I kind of feel like, you know, if you make something that's, like, really personal to you and really resonates with you, maybe it's not going to appeal to as many people, but the people who it does appeal to, they're going to see how much of yourself you've put into it and how passionate you are about it, and that's going to resonate with them as well. So that's kind of, like, been, like, the thing that's kind of guided me um, through doing an Emily Was Gone and then like when I did uh, Sync which was also like a Glasgow based um, crime story and then when it comes to the Crimson Cage we saw about like you know like my twit, you know fascination you know with pro wrestling I love to pro wrestling but having said that in plotting the Crimson Cage I have this kind of like double challenge in my hands where I have two things that are seen as niche and not for everybody that I'm trying to show can be for everybody in the sense that um yeah, a lot of people like think are are put off by wrestling. They think, oh, I'm not interested in wrestling, you know, which is fair enough. Like, you know, not everyone's everybody. Um, but like, I, I don't. I could not exactly much a baseball guy or like you know a boxing guy or like you know I don't know whatever these are. Also, a basketball guy, but 
if a movie, if it's a great basketball movie or a great baseball movie, like you know, I couldn't tell you the rules of like a baseball match, probably very well. But yeah. I feel the dreams is amazing, you know, yeah. like you know, or like you know, like so. I think like you know, you don't necessarily need to be um, an enthusiast of a topic to be invested in the story. If the, if you know, if you get, if you still get into the characters and you get into the conflict and you get into the drama enough, and by the same token, Shakespeare's not for everybody. A lot of people will go. Um, oh, Shakespeare, that's the thou die. Um, it's all highfalutin. I'm not interested in that. And I was kind of interested in the challenge of, I mean, I think Shakespeare's one of the best storytellers that's ever existed. I think his stories are timeless. And I think one of the best examples of that is how many great stories out there that people love without even realising their adaptations of Shakespeare. Um, so with The Crimson Cage, I had this idea of going, well, what, let's show how Macbeth is still timeless, how um, 400 years down the line, um, people will still read a story about someone with ambition, like, you know, undermining their own happiness, like someone who has a lot and doesn't even see how much they've got until they've thrown it all away, grasping for more. That's a story that can always be relevant. Um, you know, people are always going to like, you know, witches and bloodshed and revenge and murder and, you know, ambition and all that stuff. Mm. And like so, for me, like that, this is one of the fun challenges of like, let's see if I can like take the building blocks of that story and put it into a kind of modernish setting. And one of the one of the things that I really love, one of my favorite, some of my favorite reviews to read of the Crimson Cage are the folk who will review the book and clearly don't have a clue that it's an adaptation of Macbeth. You know, just like you know, <laughs> I don't know where the witches are coming from, but it's really cool. You know, like, you know, I like and, and I like the idea that the story like works even without. No, yeah. it's like same way that like I love how people say, "Oh, I'm not a big wrestling fan," but I like this. It shows that you don't, you know. I think if you are a wrestling fan, there's gonna be a lot of stuff in it, you know, that you'll probably appreciate and you'll vibe with, you know, and you go, "Oh, I can see why he's doing that." But my goal is always to one write something, yeah, that wrestling fans will appreciate, but also write something that you don't need to be a wrestling fan to enjoy it. You know, you can just enjoy a good story, hopefully, and you'll enjoy it too. I know Joe has some wrestling specific questions, but this is proof why he's out here doing the Lord's work with me right now, because uh, I, because yeah, this is a book that uh, if we didn't do this show, um, you know, or I didn't talk to Joe, I, I would have just glossed over it. And absolutely like this, this was an awesome story. And when you talk about the horror vibes, Tony talked about it more earlier, like that absolutely comes through amazingly. Um, and I know we want to talk about the art in a little bit, but I mean that, that the, it's hundred percent spot on. Like you do not need to be a wrestling fan at all. I have very peripheral knowledge of it all um, at, at best. Um, so yeah, it, it's it, like a hundred percent, Joe, you were spot on with this. Thank you. Thank you. I, I do my best, Nicholas. I do my mm, best. Well, be a wrestler good <laughs> enough this time. Yeah. But get, get back to what you were saying. It's, it's absolutely wild because, you know, I know you've, you, you've been a wrestling fan for some time and as have I, and it's just wild how like, perfect shake like some of shakespeare's stories are for wrestling because wrestling yeah. yeah there's the there's the you know the physical aspect of it and yes it's got that knock of oh it's it's staged it's a predetermined outcome but i think part of the reason i know why i love wrestling so much and, and i'm assuming you as well is that the storylines you know the the heels versus the faces yeah. the good guys versus the bad guys and and Macbeth. yep is such a perfect fit here. And I mean, that's one of the things that always stood out to me is how neatly wrestling dovetails into Shakespeare. Like, forgive yeah. me if you've heard this before. I've given this analogy a few times already, but um, for me, like one of the things that really struck me is obviously, like I said, like when I was studying Shakespeare, we were talking about what, what Shakespeare was like, you know, at the time when Shakespeare was alive and he was producing new plays and thought we were like, let's go see the new play that Billy Shakespeare's made. But like, um, the, Back then, like a picture, of, like London was this like city on the rise. It was this growing metropolis. It was just starting to take shape, and like people would be leave this kind of bustling metropolis, and they would cross like the the, um, the river, and they'd go across this bridge, and the other side of the bridge was like slum town, all of like the brothels and the seedy bars and the cockfighting rings and the opium dens, and like right in the center of all this, like the property was the Globe Theatre. Um, where like people, Shakespeare would put on his plays, and like so, you'd go in here and it was just rowdy the atmosphere. They had bars in the premises. Folk were getting tanked up in booze. There was prostitutes like milling around the audience, selling their wares. People were getting like you know having fights in like the audience and getting riled up. And then 
the, the on and then it's the stage was not like we think of like a proscenium art stage when you have like you know the big elevated stage and like you know separate from the audience folk would walk out from behind the curtain down a ramp into a square that was in the middle of like all the like audience like surrounded like at three sides and these people were like respectfully listening in silence they were cheering and booing and heckling they were like you know cheering for their favorites like booing the villains and like the, and then the actors couldn't like do subtle performances they had to give these grand physical performances and shout um at the top of their lungs so the people in the back because you know, everyone was projected and like really overblown it was like a wrestling show, probably like, you know, Shakespeare's performances at the time had more in common with like today's pro wrestling shows and like with like modern Shakespeare productions. Like, you know, and, and then even when you factor in the fact that like it's also like, you know, men in tights. <laughs> now you need to flip the script and do a wrestling story set in Shakespeare times. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh no, I've got a whole like, bunch of like Shakespeare based wrestling like ideas in my head still beyond like, you know. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things, John, that 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 I noticed right away is the character Van Emerald, and yeah. how how he looked v- and acted very much like Ric Flair. Who were some of the other wrestling uh, personalities that you molded some of these characters out of, or that you you know incorporate bits and pieces of into some of the characters in the story? Oh yeah, like I, that was one of the earliest kind of like foundation blocks of this. You know, the series was. Saying to Alex, I see this wrestler as being like XYZ and see it being equivalent to, you know, like ABC. Van Emerald, Jess, Rick Flair was like a big kind of like touchstone. But also like elements of like Harley Race as well. And like, you know, just like the, the idea of like the old champion, the old incumbent champion, um, which has been a staple like going through like, you know, the history of wrestling. Um, and then like, you know, for Chuck Frenzy, like the big influences of him were um, one, uh, Magnum TA um, was like, you know, I thought of like him being like a visual reference point for him as well as like Rick Rude. And like another one that I had in mind like, in terms of like his personality is I had thought of him about like a Ricky Steamboat type. Like wow. I was talking to um, Alex about this and said like Ricky Steamboat was one of my like all time favorite wrestlers. But the thing about Ricky Steamboat is that he was never like the guy. Like, and he was like the person like who you put against like Ric Flair, like rather than being like the headline draw on his own. And if he was the champion, didn't last too long. Like, you know, um, and I always thought it was an interesting dynamic, you know, where it's like, um, People know you're talented, but they don't really trust you to be like the top top guy. And what if like you know Ricky Steamboat like was got tired of being like the nice guy, like you know wanted to be. And that's why that's where like you know like the white tights, the white you know, ring attire yeah. for um, Chuck Frenzy came from was like a, you know because that's what Ricky Steamboat dressed in. I mean, I thought so that was kind of a visual cue for him. And then obviously like the other the other big touchstone was like Randy Savage um, yeah. because like you know he had Elizabeth and like Charlene is both Elizabeth and Scary Sherry like or sensational yeah. Sherry depending on like, what your time frame is. Um, like, you know she, she she starts as like Elizabeth then transforms into Sherry over the course of it. Um, so that was like a big touchstone as well. Then with like Abominable Grud, um, one of the things I always remembered hearing stories about um, Vader, who was like, ah. to be, and the, the whole thing was he was supposed to be terrifying, and like everyone was like really afraid of working with him because he was so intense and hard hitting. Then, then reportedly, like you know, once he whenever whenever he hurt people, he'd go backstage and he was just in tears, like you know, like so remorseful over like you know, like hurting people by accident, and like I always thought that was an interesting dynamic of having this big kind of like scary bruiser who like wore his heart on his sleeve and his emotions on his sleeve, you know, when the cameras were off him, and so that was kind of something I played with with Grud. And then, of course, there's a whole bunch, a whole bunch of like parallels. If you go, like, obviously, uh, Emmett Crow's like Dusty Rhodes. That was the big yeah. kind of touchstone for him. Um, yeah, like, you know, so there's, oh, there's, like, everyone has a parallel or two. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, you know, not to date myself and you don't need to date yourself either. But for me, like, I, you know, the attitude era for me was was peak prime wrestling watching, you know, for me. But for me, it was Stone Cold, The Rock, Chris Jericho. Uh, Shawn Michaels, Triple H, those were those were some of my favorite wrestlers. Absolutely obsessed with them. I actually got a couple of their Funko Pops. I got I actually have <laughs> Bret Hart right next to Shawn Michaels uh, in the case over there. Oh. Uh, but what were some? Who were some of your like all time you know favorite wrestlers? Well, I was like I was like a Bret Hart kid. That was just my yeah. that, that was like my prime generation. I was a bit 
I was a bit too late to be a Hulkamaniac. I think even like in the early nineties, I thought Hulk was a bit tacky. Yeah. Uh, like, cause I was always more of a Bret Hart kid, and I was so much a Bret Hart fan. I was one of the fans who, like, when he turned heel, like you know, against Austin, like I was like, I was with Bret. I was like legitimately angry as a kid, going like, you know, how come everyone's booing Bret? He's the good guy here. Yeah. Like, you know, he's just trying to be fair. Like, you know, no, you know. So I was actually getting really emotional like, behind Bret. Um, and so he was like a big favorite. Like, uh, Big Foley, Mankind, Cactus Jack was a big favourite of mine. Always saw even back in the, the heyday of like The Rock and Stone Cold and the, yeah. the you know, I'm always a bit more of a fan of like, you know, Mick Foley because I, I just something I love about like, you know, the guy who's not like the world champion or the main guy, like the guy who like oft mostly loses, but it makes you believe you might just win this time. I always love that dynamic. But my, I know but similar to my all time favourite wrestler, um, going back to like 2006 and it's lasted all through like up until the present day is Brian Danielson um, oh, yeah. like you know I think you know he's someone I absolutely think is still the best today and like and even when he was retired for three years like you know with his concussion issues he was still my favourite I was thinking one day he's going to come back I believe yeah. it um, so yeah like you know and so he's probably my, who I'd pick as my all time favourite was the choose just one yeah, I saw him. Uh, they were AEW was in Boston a couple of weeks ago, and mm. uh, I was there, and he was he was on the card, so it was fun. It had been my first time seeing him wrestle. Of course, I hadn't been to a wrestling show probably since the late nineties, uh, so it was fun to, or at least you know, big time. You know, big yeah, time no, I don't get to see much live wrestling here in Scotland, but I did twenty nineteen. Um, I did travel to the US to New Jersey to see WrestleMania live. I thought, oh, I want to do this once in my life before I die. So you went to New Jersey. So, I mean, yeah, I New Jersey. I've not going to knock it. I thought it was really nice, New Jersey. I had a friend that lived there was able to show me all the nice, you know, like local eateries and stuff. And I had a really great time in New Jersey. Um, but the card is so I got to see Brian Danielson versus Kofi Kingston. And I was the wow. only person in that like 20,000 strong arena, whatever it was, 200,000, I can't even remember what it was. Um, but I was the only person in that arena that was cheering for. Daniel Bryan and that <laughs> night. Everyone else was cheering for Kofi. <laughs> so one thing we've kind of hinted around, we've talked about a little bit was the art, of course, with Alex yeah. and Ashley Cormack actually on the colors, Alex on the, the yeah. pencils and inks. And of course, we, we got to dig into this a little bit more. Uh, I know Joe has said you know a couple times now, and we've talked about this, how they really capture the world of wrestling well with their style. For me, like you talk about the horror elements of this, and that stands out a ton of course, in the storytelling, but also in the artwork, things get so vicious, especially the, the you know the end where we see you know the last image of this whole series, which of course the fifth issue of that of the series drops uh, this week. Um, so, how did you come to work with them on this project? Well, I have a long-standing relationship with Alex Cormack, um, going way back years. Um, we worked together. We did a couple of shorts and things together. Then the first major project we did was Oxymoron, Lovelace Nightmare um, for Comic Stripe. And from there we followed on to Alex working with me on Sync, which is probably like still my best known book. Um, and like it's got to the point now where like Alex is like my comics <laughs> life partner. <laughs> you know, where like where it's got you know where if you were to if I were to come up with an idea for a comic like and close my eyes and try and imagine that world by default. I would imagine that as drawn by Alex. So I actually has to take hmm. an effort on my part to try and find other people like to work with sometimes because Alex can't draw everything, you know. <laughs> but like um the way so like he's someone like you know that I, I, I love working with. Um they, you know they say that kind of like that cliche, I think it was Neil Gaiman first brought it up, the idea of like the triangle of like comics collaborators, like you know, they can be good, they can be fast. You know, like as it, you know, like you, you want someone who's good, fast, or nice. You know, you can choose one. You'll maybe get two, but nobody's all three. Um, like so, either mm. someone's going to be like, you know, fast and nice to work with. You know, but that you know, uh, you know, like they're what was that? What was that? I said fast. I forgot. Yeah, fast, <laughs> nice to work with, but they don't know they suck. Or like you know, or they're fast and good, but they're an asshole. Or like you know, they're good and like they're. They're a nice person, but they take for ages to get mm. pages in. Alex is all three. He's like the miracle man. Like, you know, when his pages look great, he's like super fast and he's like the nicest person on earth. Like, you know, like I, he's already I think of him as a good friend. I love talking to him. So as it happened, we were working, we were busy working together on sync and 
Um, like so, I think we've done. I think we've done volume one. We were just about we're middle of working on volume two. I think it would have been. And I was talking to Alex about the Crimson Cage, and I was talking to him about um, this idea. I don't like you know, and I'd be talking to this editor, and then they go anywhere back in twenty seventeen. This is before I had an artist attached. And I was like, I think I still want to make this book, but I don't know who the artist would be. Now Alex is like, I'll draw it, John. And I'm like, you know, but you're already doing sync. But Alex is like superhuman and could do like 10 books at once. So he said, I can, I can do Crimson Cage as well. And sure enough, like, you know, once he came on board, I was like, how could anybody else have drawn this? Uh, like, mm-hmm. I'm just so happy that I'm going to like, this is as I think I've, made this clear the Crimson Cage is like a dream project of mine. Um and it's only fitting that I'd get to like work with like my dream creative team. Alex is like um as I mentioned, amazing one of my best friends in comics. Asha Cormack his wife. Um I'd known her like uh, since um back when we first announced think Alex actually came and visited Glasgow um, so we could announce the book at Glasgow Comic Con and um, he brought us you know he brought Ashley with him and you know like she's a lovely person as well and then when I found out she's like a super talented colourist too and like she'd coloured a couple of issues of Sync um, not all of them I think just occasionally she'd popped into like because usually Alex colours himself I think you know but it was a couple of times when he was like running a bit behind but Ashley stepped in to help out um, and then when I mentioned the Crimson Cage Ashley was like you know I'd love to colour that so I said absolutely because I think she's obviously a great fit creatively as well as in life <laughs> um, but um, so yeah like, crazy stuff from her she, like some of the stuff like the, where it needs to pop it pops yeah. and where it needs to get nasty holy uh, shit she pivots yeah I mean like, and some of the notes and this is a book especially but a, a lot of times like you know like color does I don't mention color as much in like my scripts but this was one where color was super important there's like specific times in the script where I'm talking about because I'll always try and talk about light sources in my script or where the light's coming from or why rather just leaving the artist to kind of dream up something you know but there's certain scenes like um and like when they're in the bayou where in the script I'll specifically say this is not written like uh, this is not lit like a naturalistic scene in the bayou at night time. Imagine this is like an 80s like neon horror movie. Like how would this light, like, you know, how would this scene be lit in one of those? Like with like purples and greens and what have you. Um, and then she, came, she rose to the challenge. And then in the dream sequence um, and a couple of other key areas in the book, um, I specifically gave the note to Ashley, go watch uh, Suspiria go watch Inferno and look about how it's all written with red and blue um, and, and, and try and create that vibe for this. Imagine like this, because this is like a similar time frame, like the set in the LA's. Like imagine this is like a lost Dario Argento film if he made a movie about wrestling, you know, in the 1980s and they got released, you know, and that was the kind of vibe we were going for and like, and actually not out of the park in terms of creating that aesthetic. I think it just, you know, worked really well. Um, then of course Hassan he's amazing in the lettering like you know I've asked him to do some quite ambitious things here and he pulls it all off and like I think not only is it like the dialogue but so much of the immersive stuff like with the crowd noise like the wall of noise with the cheering mm-hmm. the sound like the only you know, like the way the sound effects are shaped into the fabric of the match you know it makes it feel immersive and makes you don't even notice so I think I really lucked out in the team that I have for the project mm-hmm. so you, you mentioned you know at the start of the question there where you know when you when you write something your your go-to you 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 picture alex in mind mm-hmm. um and then how it's difficult trying to picture another artist uh you know sort of doing that work so how did you come to work with dalabar talajic and can you tell him to cut the shit because he continues to scare the hell out of me <laughs> uh, well, off it's my moral duty every time i'm in an interview or any kind of promotional thing to spread the gospel that his name is Dalabar Talaich. Oh, Talaich, okay. <laughs> we should have asked beforehand. We forgot uh, to. Damn it, we always it. remember that too. No, 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 nobody, like, you know, um, I couldn't pronounce it for the longest time. Um, I like, and he's, he's uh, such a funny guy. Like, you know, when I first met him and, like, you know, we were talking, like, we had to do some promo stuff to camera together. And I was like, you know, Dalabar, like, how do you pronounce your surname? And he's like, you know, people say it wrong so often I forgot myself. I don't know. Anymore, you know. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but you know, so it's that. I mean, I might, I might even still be getting it wrong, but as far oh, as kind of mortality, each, I'm sure that's what you said it is. So, um, but um, that was actually a really interesting process. Um, Hotel was like one of the first books, like I've kind of 
put together like on spec where like um i first met axel um for lunch in new york in 2018 this was back before awa being announced there was even a thing and he was saying like you know i'm putting together a new comics publisher i'm looking for upcoming writers i want to work with and i was kind of like surreal that i was even meeting him but he'd be interested in talking to me but he'd read thinking like was interesting what i had to say he's like i'd love for you just to pitch ideas to us and like you know come up with some stuff just based on that is the initial conversation we'd had um he talked about like how he loved the anthology premise of Sync and he didn't have any other anthology ideas. He'd mentioned um, something set in like an old roadside hotel. And he was thinking like, of a, of a, in the noir genre, but my mind went to horror because, as I mentioned, I'm a horror loving weirdo. Um, but <laughs> um, then, like, you know, he also mentioned if you got anything else with clowns in it, and I'm like, fucking clowns, I've already, like, you know, done a clown story and thing. But, you know, but I thought, I'll try and come up with like, a clown as, like, as different as possible than, like, the clowns that are in sync. Um, so I, thought, I had all these little, like, things just based on his conversation that I want to try and pitch something which is tailored precisely to um axel's interest and the kind of things he might you know want to green light um so based on that conversation i put to put it all together into like hotel or as it was originally called in the pitch package next exit no vacancy um it oh, was really? uh, yeah okay. that was that was my original because I'm, I'm a sucker for long clunky titles but um axel <laughs> took a look at it but I actually took a look at that and was like, you know, we'll make a hotel with two L's. And I was like, yeah, that's probably better. <laughs> um, but <laughs> next, next Exit No Vacancy was the original name. That's about an inside <laughs> scoop for you. Um, but the... So that was like, I kind of put together that picture. It was just like, I was just writer only at that time. No, I'd only like, you know, like, I just was just like a word document with like the story ideas. This is what I think this, this comic would be. What do you think? And they loved the idea and they went to go for it. And then it was AWA that put together the team for me. Like, I usually, that's like, you know, something I have to do. Like, I usually put together a team myself. This was a new experience of like, you no, know, we're going to find all these people and we're going to pair you up. And when you actually look at the team, it's Dalabar on the R, it's Lee Lowridge and the colors, it's mm-hmm. Sal Cipriano and the letters. These are all guys with like big, like big two Marvel DC bona fides. I'm like the scrub that's done fuck all, like you know. And then like this is like I'm the nobody that's surrounded by all these like legit talent, like you know. And I felt the pressure, like oh my god, like you know he's putting together all these like legit star creators. Like if I screw this up, it's on me. I'm the person to blame, you know. Um, you know, so like it was a lot so there was a lot of pressure in that sense it was kind of weird because i wrote the scripts before like had we had a conversation with dalabar like you know um we didn't you know because it was all kind of like i'd send the scripts to the editor and then the editor would send the art to dalabar and then like dalabar would send the pages back in etc etc and you know so like it was a bit disconnected at first and then the further this so was i'd already written like at least most of the series, if not all of it, by the time New York Comic Con 2019 came along and I met Dalabar in person for the first time. And when we met, we hit it off right away. Like, you know, we had a similar sense of humour. Like, you know, we clicked. I like, you know, and I, got, and I got to know him. And that's one of the things I really enjoyed about Volume 2. With Volume 2, one of the first things I did was I set up a rapport with Dalabar. Like, I, you know, we follow each other on Twitter. I set up a DM chain. Like, you know, and I'm like, okay, what kind of things would you like to draw Dalibor? Like, you know, what things interest you? Like, what kind of ideas do you want me to riff on? want to work into the narrative? And I got to know him a bit better. And also, because I'm now writing with his art style in mind, I'm writing to, like, what I think, you know, knowing how it's going to look, knowing it's to his sensibilities. And I feel like I think volume two is better than volume one in that sense because we have that chemistry now. And, like, you know, we have that. It's so much easier to write when you know who you're writing for. Um, I think like so. I think like you know, it feels like a more layered book in that sense as a result. So you you, you mentioned I'm, I'm always interested because I feel like Joe and I were starting to hear this a little bit more and more from writers that they want to ask the artist, "What do you want to draw?" Um, and then obviously we, every time that ha- I feel like we hear that, there are people we're talking to on the show, and it's like we loved your books, and you know, a big part of that's the art. So at what point did you realize, not necessarily with Dalibor, like to ask him that question, but in general? I need to start asking artists what is it that they want to draw, so that way they can give that you know extra uh, you know vibe to this story. Well, I think like you know it's like it's partly like it's like the selfish impulse of like wanting your book to be as good as possible, so like, you know you try and like get an answer with their strength, but also like you know I think it's just like you know comics you know are a lot more fun. You know, like the but one of the highlights of 
comics, you know, or at least the American comics model is the collaboration. It's different creative voices, like, you know, blending together to make something that, like, none of them could make on their own. Like, you know, like, it's, like, the symbiosis of, like, those different perspectives coming together to make something. Like, me and Ian Laurie coming together to make a book is going to be different from me and Alex Cormack coming together to make a book, which is going to be different from me and Dalibor coming together to make a book. Like, that pairing is always going to be something distinct and so i think it's interesting to find like well what defines this voice what is it that brings us together like you know and trying to kind of get a better sense of who an artist is what their personality is what they're good at we know what like is going to like you know challenge them what's going to like push them out of their comfort zone in a good way maybe to kind of like bring out different dimensions of their work i always think that's an interesting dynamic to play i think that's one of the one of the most fun things about writing comics like and it's all the relationships always different like for me like for example with me and alex like you know it's like total sync like you know no pun intended like the sync is in like synchronized but oh man um, i know but like you know but like with me and alex like um it's like you know like we're just like totally like on the same page always like vibing with each other like you know we all have the same idea like you know i'll you know you know we've came to the same conclusion from different places and like there's this total harmony we just like with ian laurie like you know i think one of the things that makes our collaboration so good is that we're always pulling in opposite directions where um when you read it and emily was gone it is simultaneously like ian's most mainstream narratively driven classic work and my most out there and bonkers work because like i'm always pulling Ian in the direction of like well let's focus on the emotion and in the character arcs and like you know the narrative and he's always pulling me in the direction of like you know aesthetic and vibe and like going really dreamlike and weird and strange and because we're both pulling in opposite directions the middle ground we come to is always something really interesting and kind of like dynamic um so i always think like it's always good to have a rapport with an artist and kind of like get a sense of who they are because then you're tailoring you know you're not just like you know you're i think if you're just writing a script thinking oh anybody can draw this i'll just write a script if it's something that anybody can draw how much personality is it going to have like you know mm. and then like you know you're depriving yourself of one of the tools in your toolbox as a creator if you don't think you know if you don't make a point of knowing who your artist is going to be and like you know writing something like you know to that artist's strengths and, like or writing something like you know that they know you know you know they're going to like you know you're serving them the the ball to like you know hit it with the bat to go back to my labor analogy of not really knowing how baseball is played i think it's like something like that um, but... this is perfect this is amazing yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> so, so when you, you brought up how axel when he when you guys first talked about like when the hotel idea came up um he had talked about you know giving an anthology story you know, mixing in clowns and everything too of course um but i'm curious you know one of the things that was just so amazing about the first arc is that this is a story where you like you know it's it's a bunch of individual stories that do connect to one another but you can absolutely pick up issue three without having read issue two um and only having read, and even not having read issue one necessarily and I'm curious, like, when you were, how did you come to this idea? Outside of Axel, of course, mentioning he was interested in an anthology and interested in clowns being involved in some capacity, because this did feel like an anthology story, but like different from any other, not just from the the contents of the story, but in the way in which you told the story. Um, well, I'm a big sucker for anthologies in general. Like, I love anthologies. Like here in the UK, we have like a rich tradition. Of like anthology type storytelling, um, be it be it be like the dramas of Jimmy McGovern, or there's a series called Inside Number Nine, which I absolutely love, which is all like standalone little creepy tales. But as well as that, or 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 movie sense, you know, like you have stuff like Dead of Night or like Creep Show or stuff like that. But beyond that, in terms of comics specifically, like I'm always trying to think. I had the same thoughts when I was developing Sync, which is. I want to try and like think of ways to get beyond this idea of if you miss issue one of a book, then you just you can never read it. Like mm. you, know, you just have to wait until like you know the trade comes out, you know. Or if you hear about a book like a year down the line, like you know you have to then just go back and try to seek out issue one rather than just you know. And I, I think back when I was a kid, um, or like you know a teenager. And let's say, like, you know, I went to see Batman Forever, you know, in, like, the cinema, you know, and I wanted to read some Batman comics. I could walk to the comic shop and look about and go, oh, I'll just pick up this issue, you know, and I'd read it and, like, you know, it'd be good. And you can, you know, and yeah, there might be allusions to stuff that's, like, you know, been happening, like, you know, earlier on, but you just read it and enjoy it. You don't have to go back to issue one or back mm -hmm. to the beginning of the run to follow what's going on. 
and I kind of miss that element of comics a little bit. The idea of just being able to like jump in and like you know read an issue like so. And I first developed sync, and later with Hotel, I had the idea of I wanted to be able to craft a series where, um, let's say somebody's heard good things about Hotel, they've read good reviews, they've listened to a podcast talking about all oh, hotels really good, and then like they're um in the comic shop getting their weekly pool and they look in the shelf and they see hotel volume two issue four and they see like a dramatic cover or something to go that looks good i want them to be able to pick that up and yeah there might be things they don't understand the things they appreciate more like if they read the whole thing but i want them to be able to pick that book up and then just read it and like it's a good story and they'll enjoy it with you know without you know necessarily to have read the whole thing beforehand hopefully they read that story and they enjoy it, and then it compels them to go back and read the rest of it from the beginning. And like, so I like the idea of if you're someone who's been reading the series, you will be rewarded for that reading by getting things you know that new readers mm-hmm. wouldn't get. But at the same time, if you're a new reader, you can just jump on any issue, hopefully. Like, apart from the last issue, the last issue put the ties all together. Maybe not new reader friendly, but other than that, it's mostly standalone. So with with volume two now, volume one is Nick is Nick talked about right. It is very anthology like, and and even with volume two, there's there's elements of where you know each issue is is got its own standalone story, but it, it def- story I should say, but it definitely feels a lot more linear, especially with the last issue, which will be coming out uh, in a bit. Uh, was there a change in approach between volume one and volume two, and 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 why make a little bit of a change there? I think that was kind of part of the process of developing it. Like, volume one, for anyone who's not read the series, like, um, Hotel, like, is set in this hotel called Piero Courts, which officially doesn't exist. You wouldn't find it in any map, but, you know, if you're driving down Route 66, you might see this sign in the road that takes you there, and it's this place where, like, strange occurrences and, you know, demonic encounters take place. Um, but... The first volume, volume one, takes place all over the course of a single weekend. It's the weekend of a solar eclipse. And it's like, there's four issues, and each issue is the perspective of a different room. Room one, room two, room three, room four. And you're seeing, like, um, the same events occurring from different perspectives. So it's all happening at the same time, essentially. Um, and then when it came to developing volume two, I was like, well, what did I do for volume two? It's like, oh, there's another eclipse. You know, like, you know, <laughs> I know, I know, which is like a bit, so I can't really just do the same thing again. You have to try and do something that's a bit bigger. I mean, I had like various conversations and discussions about this. Like, I, I thought, do we have something that's taking place over a long period of time, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, like, over, you know, or like, you know, do we like do something that's still a bit more contained, maybe just a bit different? So then I had the idea of, why don't we maybe expand the timeline a little bit over to, like, let's say, like a week? Um, and so we have more guests coming and going. It's a bit more ambitious in that sense. And instead of, like, you know, the event that's, like, the perspectives of that, it's, like, an exterior threat and its path towards the hotel um, and the kind of collision course that's been set up. And, like, so, like, it's not necessarily each chapter is a different room as so much as is like each chapter is bringing you incrementally closer to this big confrontation which happens in the final chapter um so that was the kind of perspective going into uh this volume so you had mentioned earlier too how like the original concepts like okay there's going to be clowns in here and clowns are it's fuck that by the way yeah respectfully (laughs) yeah Yeah. right yeah Fact that uh, clouds are inherently terrified. Why choose uh, the Pagliacci cloud? Because that might be maybe the most terrifying choice you could have picked. Well, the, the thing, the reason for that is again going back to the whole my, my idea of like fucking clowns. Let's do something different. My series sink. Um, the main antagonists in that are um, that is like based on a Glasgow urban legend, which is uh, this blue van which drives around the city and is filled with clowns who have ducked people and, like, cut up their faces and, like, feed them laughing gas and turn them Ow. into clowns. And, like, you know, but, like, <laughs> and, but these were, like, very much the kind of, like, circus-type clowns, like, you know, with the white grease paint yeah. and, like, the wigs and the funny noses. Although the, the funny noses have little razor blades that embed in their oh, noses. Kind of, like, and, like, and they have all, like, Glasgow smiles and stuff, but they're all very grubby and dirty and, like, you know, kind of, like, creepy, like, you know... I take back what like, I said about you being a human being before. Yeah. I'm just going to throw that out. I want to be on the record. So... And so, this is that, so that 
that was that type of clowns. I thought if I'm going to do clowns again, I have to do as different a clown as possible, like from those clowns. Um, which is why I then came up with the idea of like going into the Commedia dell'arte and like the you know the you know that kind of tradition, like the different archetypes, and they have like the Pagliaccio or the sort of the Piero, which is like the clown. Um, and so yeah, like you know that was kind of a, that was kind of a starting point of let's go as different as I can, rather than grubby and dirty and you know. Gritty, let's go for the ethereal, strange, and like old fashioned, old timey. Um, so, you know, like the idea, like, you know, this has been around for centuries. So, maybe like before, like, this was like before this place, Piero Courts, was visualized as like a roadside, you know, hotel off Route 66, maybe a century ago. It was a tavern, like, you know, with the same paint in the wall, like, you know, because it's such an old tradition, you know. And like, so that was something I thought was like bit the story quite well, and yeah. So just in terms of like, the whole vibe of it, like you know, I think it, I think it's just like a weird fit having this clown and that painting and the setting of like you know an old roadside hotel and that setting, like for me, like that was one of the, the main kind of like touchstones of um, what was interesting to me about hotel because like you know it's like it's Americana, it's like modern, and someone told me way back at the start of my writing career that you couldn't do a good haunted house story in comics form and I took that personally I was like well I'm going to do a haunted house story you know, you know? Mm. Um, and this is kind of like this is this is kind of like a haunted house as I was on Twitter because I think I mean obviously like being a guy who travels for conventions a lot or I did travel for conventions for the world ended but like you know <laughs> um, but like you know like whenever I travel like, I, you, know, you start to get appreciation that hotels are inherently creepy places like you know they're places where people like you know of like hi, you know, like, all these stories have happened in these rooms all these encounters and I think I talked a little bit about this in like the prologue or the introductions of the first issue way back when but I remember like one of the key like touchstones of like thinking of or developing hotel as an idea was I was in my hotel, I was in the bathroom. Uh, was it in Jersey? No, I was in New York. So I was in so I was in so I was in the bathroom, um take a dump. And like you know and like, you know and the door was open and like there was, there was a there's like a mirror um in the living room and like you can see reflected in the mirror like the bed in the room. And it was like one of those beds which has like, you know, there's no bottom underneath it. It's just like the four legs. And you can see like, you know, the floor underneath like the mattress. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was sort of sitting there in the toilet and I had this thought of, imagine if I looked in that mirror and there was someone under the bed looking oh, back at you, like, you know, in the mirror. <laughs> you know, nope. and, you know, and then I had that thought. And that thought eventually germinated into like issue three of all you mum the guy in the walls. But like, oh, you know. <laughs> yeah. Don't like that. Great story. Hey, and you know what? We read, the, and for those listening, we uh, we read the final issue of Hotel Kicks Ass, but fuck this. This is, not, <laughs> this is, uh, don't why I have to read this book during the day. Yeah, I don't know where we got, I don't know how we got to here for clowns, but like, um, I don't know, yeah, I'm not happy about it. <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, so I, I, that, that was like what I felt is creepy about Hotel and how it resonated with me and what I feel like you convey a sense of atmosphere and dread that he does. Yeah, it's funny. Oh, sorry to cut you off, but it's the simplicity of the clown too and just the way, you know, it's it's a painting, but how, you know, uh, the narrator, you know, references or, or, you know, sort of alludes to the painting, you know, in the clown and, you know, the way, you know, you see it move. Uh, it's that's it's terrifying, but it's not like, you know, the Ronald McDonald type clowns that, you know, you know, very, very, you know, freakish uh, to stare at, but it, the simplicity, I think, sort of ups uh, the terrifying factor just a bit. Yeah, I think, like, you know, and that's something as well that I really like, you know, because not everybody notices that. So I'm glad you noticed that, that, like, as early as the first issue, the page one, issue one, volume one, when you look at that first page, like, the clown is moving in between panels. Like, he's not the same, like, in the background even then. Yeah. Like, you know, also, you know, and that's something not everybody picks up on, but there's something that feels wrong just looking at it. So I'm glad that you picked up on that, too. Yes, yes, terrifying. Yeah, oh, yeah, you know, all the scary shit. Joe doesn't miss anything. That's why he doesn't sleep when he misses these things. Um, well, you definitely won't sleep when you're thinking of somebody under your bed, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah not well, sleeping tonight, I'll tell you that much. And, and you know, for all the, the you know, scares we get with this series, you know, where we want a third volume of Hotel, has there any, been any conversations about there being another one? I think it's probably, like, too early to be 
talking about volume three in terms of like usually i think AWA like to see like you know how everything how the sales have gone and the whole volume like how the trade's done etc etc before they make any decisions in that front but i know that i want to do more hotel like you know i've had ideas i've made suggestions um dalibor's on board so like like I said, like what happened with the whole reason Volume Two happened was because folk loved Volume One so much and were so vocal about it and talked about how they want more and tagged me and tagged AW Studios and said like, "When's more hotel coming?" So if you want more hotel, do that again. And I'm sure yes, like, everybody, please. <laughs> this is one of the best series out there, hands down. Like not just horror series, one of the best series out there. Period. This is like I, I love hotel, so absolutely, I want a third volume. And actually, if you're listening right now, greenlight a third volume now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I do appreciate it. And I appreciate everybody who said nice things about the book. And yeah, like you know, so obviously, like you know, as was the case with Volume One, it's been written in a way where if this is the only hotel we get to do, hopefully it's a satisfying ending. But hopefully, we've left enough little breadcrumbs that we can pick up on, like for future volumes, if we do get to do them. Yeah, that would, I mean that would be tremendous because I mean, you I think you could just take this story into a thousand different directions and it's going to be creepy and terrifying um every single time uh but another thing i want to ask you is you know with hotel wrap you know crimson cage wrapping up this week hotels wrapping up next week it was announced excuse me my voice cracked i just hit puberty i just get uh, you emotional just like you get to see this because it's audio only but a single tear just rolled down his eyes as he was talking about that <laughs> Yeah, look at that. It's happening again. Get together, Joe. I'll do my best. Uh, But it was announced, uh, you know, recently that, you know, Vault has, you know, a whole bunch of projects, you know, coming out with a whole bunch of writers. You were one of them, um, along with uh, George. I'm going to, is another name I'm going to butcher, John, George uh, Combatius. Uh, Is there anything you can tell us about that, or is that something that we're going to have to wait for? Oh, I can tell you that um, it's a book with Vault that I'm doing with George. As I say, like, um, this is a, I will say this is a project I've wanted to do for a long time. Like I'd, I'd mentioned um, that the Crimson Cage is a project that's been a passion project. It's like, very like, you know, driven by my own interests and stuff. This project I've got coming out of Vault is probably the only other thing that's up there in terms of like my passions and my interests and it's probably like my most personal comic I've ever put together. Um it's a bit different from the stuff that I've done before, uh but hopefully in a good way. Um I've I'm writing it right now. Um about maybe like three quarters of the way through writing it or give or take. You know, but this is early draft in terms of like, you know, finished polished drafts. I'm still earlier on in the process. But um you know, and I'm having a blast writing it, like flexing different muscles as a creator and like seeing some of the early layouts George is putting together. I think it's going to look great as well. George is someone who I've wanted to work with going back years. Like, um, I think like I'd saw a book he did um, called Short Order Crooks um, with Chris Sebler and he blew me away as art on that. And I'd mentioned at the time and said he was a big fan of his. And we talked about like, so let's come together and make up, make an idea when let's do something. And it just never panned out. Like, you know, we never had a time. We were both too busy and other things. So when it came to kind of come up with an artist for this, we talked about a couple of people, like, you know, the high, you know, Vault suggested a couple of people that were too busy that hadn't panned out. And I was like, well, what about this guy, George? Like, I'm a big fan of his. And like, Adrian thankfully had heard of George as well and was a fan of his also and was like, you know, if you can get George, that'd be amazing. And then so I messaged George and said, you know, our time has come. <laughs> and, like, you know, uh, and like so and then the rest is history. And yeah, so like I'm really excited. Like, working with Adrian's been great. Um he's like people obviously people gush about like Vault's editorial and it's with good reason. I mean, like, um I remember like I I'd originally pitched this series, which I, I keep on instinctively going to name the title but I'm trying to pull myself back on naming the title huh. um, but um, I'd pitched this series like a six issue miniseries and I was having an initial conversation with Adrian about it and he was like um, so you've made this book six issues and in my head I'm thinking oh this is probably trying to argue me down to four issues and he went how would you feel about making like you know a bigger series like you know making it you know, like wow like, yeah, this is amazing like how much you know and like you know so um, like and like so he's had he's, he's a really great mind in terms of, like you know sort of being generous to the creators and, like being like you know like having good space to kind of like develop ideas and um, and 
he's like one of the things I really enjoy about it as well is that um he's actually made the idea better, like, you know, in terms of like there's things like, you know, that I'd de- I'd developed a story that I was quite pleased with. And then he was able to just to sit back and go, well, why don't you do XYZ? And it instantly turned the whole thing in its head and made it even even better. So it's like it's a really kind of like interesting process working with him. Um and it's actually been a long time coming as well because we started talking about this idea late twenty nineteen. Oh. And again, then the pandemic happened, yeah. and like you know, <laughs> and it's been off. Like, you know, and then like, I think Vault, like another publisher, was spending a year trying to get on top of the current slate before while well, they tried to figure out what, what was going to happen. And it was actually just when I'd given up on the idea completely, it was early 2021 when they didn't get back in touch. It's like, you know, we, do we hmm. still want to do this? Like, you know, we're wanting to try and get on board with new things again. And like, you know, yeah, so then we spent like, you know, last year talking about the thing and getting it together, and then. I felt like a big moment just getting to announce that it was happening um, at the start of this year. So it's been a big process, and I'm really excited about being able to share more about it, hopefully soon. Nice. Um, but um, in the meantime, I have to keep stoom. I mean, well, already... Were you talking maybe... about... No, no, no. When you talk about how personal it is, though, I mean, like, and how, how important the book is to you, that says a lot to us already. So that's really... That's huge. Yeah, no, like, you know, it's like a book that I like, um, and like, as I say, it's something that like, means a lot to me and like, you know, and I can, I think I've put a lot of myself into it and a lot of my passion into it. Um, and I'm, I'm already excited about like doing the promotional tour. So like, as, as thrilled as I was to talk about wrestling for like, you know, months with the Crimson Cage, I'm just as thrilled to talk about like this subject matter oh, wow. um, for this. Um, so I think it's gonna be a lot of fun to get into. Sounds and like, like we're so, gonna have to schedule a follow-up, Joe. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm always happy to come on. And uh, between that, I've also got something else which hasn't even been announced yet, uh, which I've been working on too. You know, which has been a lot of fun. So if you've enjoyed the current slate of things, just let uh, you know that like, you'll be seeing a lot more of me in the coming months. So hope we don't get sick of me. Nice. Well, we're we're really looking forward to the entire like, everything. Like, and we will definitely follow up with you when that vault title officially gets announced, and they actually allow you to say more about it. Um, we yeah, can't yeah. wait for that. But the one thing we usually end our interviews with, um, when it's our first time for one of our guests, we like to ask people, like we do on our show, where Joe and I talk about books we've been reading that maybe the other hasn't. What are some books, John, that you have been reading? It doesn't have to just be comics; can be prose as well. Totally acceptable. Um, but what else have you been reading uh, outside of your own work? Do you know I have been woefully behind on my comics reading? I've got like, you know, this massive pile of books. So, like, probably like everything that I'm reading is like at least three months behind what it should be in terms of like new books. But I've been like, you know, in terms of stuff that I love, it's mostly stuff you've probably read already. Like, I love um, That Texas Blood, I love Department of Truth, I love Homes, you know, Homesick Pilots. In terms of older stuff that I've been reading that I've really been enjoying, like back in 2020, like, for the first time, I get majorly into like manga, um, and like you know, like I think I think it was like you know being stuck at home, like the thrill of like a new book arriving in the post was like my substitute for like human contact. But um, like I would get like so I, I got majorly into like the works of like Naoki Urasawa, and I read uh, three of his books in succession: Twentieth Century Boys, Monster, and Pluto, which in turn became like my three like three of my all-time favorite comics like, literally in 2021 i put together like this big list for my newsletter like my 100 favorite comics of all time and i've been working on it for like a year um and i thought i had the list pretty much finalized and then like these three comics came out and totally upended it because they've all they all ended up in the top 10 and like oh. to try and give so to try and give you like the quick kind of like cliff note summary of each one <laughs> like 20th century boys is um this group of friends um and it starts off like they're kids in the 1960s and they come up with like you know they're kind of all kind of like poor and you know they all like don't have much prospects but they come up with this rich fantasy life where amongst them all they all make up this like comic this manga adventure of themselves being heroes who save the world from like this villainous force that has like you know giant robots and a virus which tries to take out humanity and they, they create themselves as like heroes you know and then um fast forward to like the late 90s and they're all adults now, they're all middle-aged, they're all disappointments, things never worked out for them. The main character, Ken, she's like working in a supermarket. Um, and like, so they're thinking life's not much for them. But then weirdly, weird things start happening across Japan. Um, like a cult starts emerging and then like various like signals start happening that the supervillains that they faced when they were kids like are attacking the world for real. 
Um, and it starts off super groundy, but eventually you start bringing in the stuff like the, the giant robot, and the, it's getting made in a factory somewhere. And it's like, so, so they, really, they start to realise that only they can save the world, but they're all like, sort of fuck-ups and like regular Joes that don't know how to do anything. And obviously it has to be one of them who is like the mastermind behind it all, because it's only them who know like, you know, what um ha- you know what that what happened in these things. So that's is that's a great book. And then there's like a series The Monster is a book about this genius surgeon who um makes a career destroying decision to save the life of a young boy who's been shot in the head rather than saving the life of an influential politician who's a big donor to the hospital who's had a heart attack and because he chooses to save the little boy um his career's ruined he like he's like you know all promotions are like cut off like he's left to drudge and like you know um obscurity but he thinks oh, i've made the right decision you know like I, I, I did good for the world you know so i'd stand by my principles then it fast forwards into the future and the wee boy whose life he saved grows up to become like a serial killer who oh. um who then like who out of like gratitude uh very comments for the doctor decides to start like you know destroying his various enemies and the people like you know who halted his life and his ambitions you know as a favor to show his like appreciation for him and draws him into his web of like you know like this depravity and monstrosity and then this surgeon realizes it's his responsibility to kill this person because he's the one that saved him like you know and put him on it and like you know so that's great and then like i know i've been telling ages talking about these books now but Pluto, a very quick version is set in the future it's like this um a private detective who, uh, so that's an Interpol agent who is trying to solve murders by robots who are killing like both people and humans, but it's impossible because robots are like you know programmed never to be able to hurt humans. You know, so it becomes this whole thing about like sort of like bigotry into like you know sort of like you know like races of population, humans and robots, and it's really cool and really good. And yeah, so all three of these books are amazing. I love them, um, and I've been like eulogizing them and like you know like pra- singing their praises to anybody who listen so yeah if you're looking for a good comics check all of those out well i'll yeah, tell you what, we're, yeah we're looking for for mangas because we don't do much of that on this show and i'm gonna tell you right now joe i'm gonna be that guy i'm calling dibs on monster so and i'm oh, not even remotely yeah, sorry about it right. uh, we're gonna we're gonna yeah we're gonna do that one on this show it sounds <laughs> the amazing. only thing that makes me happier than people saying that they've like you know read my comics is people saying i've heard you talking about urasawa books and i picked them up so yeah that would be, that would be very happy if you get into reading monster oh yeah def- i'm definitely gonna give this a look because that sounds awesome. they, they all sound interesting but that one was definitely the one that piqued my interest the most yeah. so i'm definitely yeah. gonna give that one a look but john we of course appreciate you taking the time very much uh to talk to us about hotel Crimson Cage. Of course, you can pick up the final issue of Crimson Cage this week, the final issue of Hotel Volume 2 next week. And it sounds like we're going to have to talk yep. to you again down the line because you got a yep. lot more coming. And if you missed the series, don't worry because the collection of Hotel Volume 2 is coming out in June and the collection of Crimson Cage is coming out in July. Awesome. Perfect. Good stuff. Well, thank you again, John. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.